You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. We do this to ourselves because writers will do anything once, but more if you praise us for it. Hi, I'm Laura Ann Gilman. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 89, Stealing the Best Parts of History. just read my soul there like i am such a praise monkey yikes i was not i was not ready for that welcome listeners to another episode of world building for masochists and we today have another fantastic guest with us laura ann please introduce yourself your work and tell us about who you are and what you do how much time do i got Uh, So I am the author of, uh, most recently, the historical dark fantasy Uncanny Times, which just came out from Simon & Schuster. I'm not going to praise the book because reviewers are already doing that. You can just go check it out. I have written some other really great fantastical award-winning and award-losing books, including the Devil's West series, which is historical fantasy, and the Kosho Nostradamus series, which is contemporary urban fantasy where I have the amazing cheat where magic works alongside electricity. These are all available wherever good reading is sold and also on Amazon. Hey, <laughs> I'm a troublemaker. I'm a troublemaker. Oh, we're so excited for that. That's, yes, that's, that's glorious. That's very much our brand. <laughs> Marshall, you were about to say something else. What were you about to say? I, I was about to say, I just love the, the title of award winning and award losing. And, and maybe we should adopt that ourselves. <laughs> We are both actually, aren't we? we? Different we awards, are. but yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been nominated for five different awards and I've taken home one of them. Hey, that's pretty good. So that's And well the best thing is the one that I took home actually came with a check. Nice. Yes, that's, that's, that's definitely best. good. That's Yeah. <laughs> As we said in my former line of work, Shakespeare got to get paid, son. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Well, Laura Ann, thank you so much for joining us. And it sounds like you have an absolutely fascinating body of work that our listeners should check out. Uh, We are here today to talk about stealing the best parts of history, which is something near and dear to my heart as well. Um, Tell us what it is that you find compelling about history. What makes you want to steal from it? Well, I should preface this by saying that I was a history major in college um, because it felt like something that would be completely useless and yet a lot of fun which it is. What I love about history is that in general, real life does things that fiction wouldn't dare. And history records all that for posterity or lack thereof. Um, But when you study history, you're studying people, you're studying events, you're studying the stuff that, like I said, we couldn't make up because our editors would be like, "Mm, no. And I could say, but look, it's here. It happened. Uh, so for me, that's that's the joy of history. It is uh, looking back at humanity at its best and also at its worst and sometimes just at it, at its weirdest. We love the weirdness. Is there something specific that like an editor has questioned at some point, some some favorite historical tidbit of yours that that someone questioned and said this couldn't possibly be true and you got to be like, oh, no, oh, no, it was. <laughs> I have the receipts. It has not happened to me in that regard, mainly because my editors uh, know my background. <laughs> nice. And they know they I'm trust. moderately obsessive about <laughs> checking things. 
My favorite, I, sh- I should not tell the story, but I'm going to anyway. Do it. My favorite bit, I was writing an Arthurian trilogy, YA tr- uh, trilogy, uh, that ended up being middle grade that they told me they wanted middle grade halfway through writing it. And I got the notes back from the editor. And the editor is a lovely human being, very smart, but pointed out that one of the characters' names seemed a little too French for an Arthurian. <laughs> I, and I have some news for him about Arthuriana. <laughs> apparently the sound of me hitting my head against my desk was heard throughout four different states. <laughs> And I, I, I did a little educating that day. Listeners, if you could see the faces Cass and I are making <laughs> at this like, concept of too French of what we, for Arthurian. Most of what we think of as Arthurian legend comes from Chrétien de Is, Trois. Com- like. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was just like, um, okay, hon, we need to talk. Starting in the fifth century. Like. Yes. <laughs> Here are the documents, okay? <laughs> and you'll notice many of them are in French. French, yes. God, oh, wow. That's amazing. I love that. That's great. <laughs> I, I I love Arthur. Arthuriana is so beautiful to me because it is it is a bunch of fan fiction in a trench coat. Like, it's all these fan fictions <laughs> standing oh, on top absolutely. of each other in a trench coat pretending to be literature. <laughs> and they've... And they've it's not even... It, it, it's a patchwork overcoat. It's not I mean, even a very good it's one. It's not yeah. even it's an, exactly. And if you if you start dissecting the story, which people have done, and it's like, my God, this is Frankenstein's mythology. It absolutely is, and I love it for that. Oh yeah, no, it's it's fab- that's why it works. Mm-hmm. But anybody who anybody who insists on pure Arthur Arthurian doesn't just, exist. Oh, hun. <laughs> Does not yeah, exist. You, you'll notice when, when, I, when, when I say "oh, hun," usually it's <laughs> "let's talk." We're southern. We get it. We we have yeah. we have bless your heart and oh sugar. Oh sugar. So. I'm, I'm not even from, I'm not even from Southern Jersey, <laughs> but I I hung out in a lot of diners, so I heard "hun" a lot. There you go. There you go. Same vibes. Same vibes. Just different geography. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 disappointed waitress vibe is is very much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So that's that's all fantastic, and I completely agree. I think history is often so much weirder than people are willing to consider, um, and it's it's so much better than the pastiche often makes it. That the gloss of like high medieval, and I'm putting that in very sarcastic quotation marks, mm. that that sort of gets painted over a lot of fantasy, and it's like the actual medieval period was so much weirder, and there are so many other periods and so many other things to play with. And I think especially when we're talking about including it in fantasy and, and taking the historical fantasy model, there's sort of two tracks that that interweave with each other, and that is research versus inspiration. How much of the history is actually using the research and the history, and how much of it is taking the the pastiche, the gloss, the the aesthetic of um, a particular era. And so for you, where does that difference lie, and is it different from project to project? For me... It's kind of eating its own tail in that one feeds the other. I think of something, I go to research it, I fall down a rabbit hole. That makes me think of something else. It's very much the ADD school of researching in that I can keep going like that over and over. It'll keep, oh, this is interesting. Oh, hang on, write a note about that. Oh, but what about this? And it'll trigger. I joke that my brain, my storytelling brain is a storeroom. And everything I learn gets thrown into the storeroom, whether I need it or not. And every once in a while, something happens 
something shifts, everything falls over. I open the door, a story falls out. I relate to that so much. I mean, the, the <laughs> ADD school of research, I, I, I'm pretty sure I got my doctorate from there. <laughs> but it is but it is a question of, I get inspired by an idea, I go to research it, what I learn inspires more. And they really do feed each other. And the trick isn't which do you use, but when do you stop? That is the problem, because history just keeps going. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. There's always another rabbit they hole. They keep making more of it. <laughs> they keep, oh, it keeps, I know, more of it keeps happening all the time. They keep uncovering more of it. And, and yeah, it's a problem I've had, too, where it's like you start looking at, at what you think is like one city or one culture or one moment in time. And it's like, but wait, in order to understand that city and culture and moment in time, I have to understand all these other things. And, ooh, those are really interesting, too. I could think of some really fun characters to put into that situation. It's like, nope, focus, focus. <laughs> One plot line at a time, I, Morris. Well, in order to answer that, we got to go back to the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had that conversation with a friend who's an archaeologist. And they have the very the same scenario, which is like everything you learn starts a new question, which then means you have to do more digging, literal or metaphorical. And everything you find changes what you thought you already knew. And that's another thing I love about history is that it does constantly change. And I feel sorry for everybody listening to this because I do most of my talking with my hands. So you guys are missing half the conversation by not being able to see the way my hands are moving. It's okay. They're used to it. We have to describe my face to them a lot. <laughs> I have a very expressive face. So we, we pause to, to let them know when something's exciting happening visually. <laughs> but you're right. Laura Ann is gesticulating as though conducting an orchestra, listeners. And I'm sorry, you can't see it. So how do you figure out where to, to stop when, when it's time to actually write the book? And then how often during drafting do you find yourself lured back into the research to do more? I think the, the researching never stops because even though I work from a, in quotes, outline, the story evolves as I'm writing it. So a lot of times I'll be like, oh, I didn't expect that. I need to stop and look that up and make sure that that is accurate or that this actually works or that it doesn't contradict something that actually happened. As to when you stop, the answer is when you realize you have a deadline coming up. Deadlines focus the mind immensely. Usually. Usually. Deadline, deadlines with money attached <laughs> to them focus the mind immensely. There it is. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Once again, that that got to get paid aspect of it is always always yeah. a good one. Well, also, also the disappointed the disappointed face my editor will make if I miss Aww. a deadline. It's like, oh god, don't do that to me. No, I'm just pick, I'm I don't know who your editor is, but I'm picturing them as like a Labrador retriever. Just <laughs> you don't want to disappoint a Labrador retriever. It's just it breaks your heart. You know, it's it's not entirely wrong. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, but that's not entirely wrong. <laughs> It's true, though, but it, it is it is hard to know where to stop sometimes. And something I found, too, is that even when drafting, even when staring down a deadline, even with however much research you've done, I will still hit a point where it's like, damn, that's one detail I didn't think to look up. <laughs> one little thing that I need desperately, perhaps only for a sentence in this entire stupid book. Oh, yeah. But I need it. Like The, the example popping into my head is that you know, with all the research I'd done on ancient Rome and, and the society and all these things. And then I hit a point where I was trying to describe a garment and the color I wanted was I was like, wait, I want it to be cranberry colored. Did they have cranberries? 
I don't know if they had cranberries. And all of a sudden I'm looking up like the growing range of cranberries. They don't. It's too far south. And then it's like, all right, if I want it to be that color, what else could it be? So I'm spending, you know, an hour of my life (laughs) trying to figure out what plants grew in Italy in the first century BC. (laughs) That would be this color. I recently had to do, you should pardon the expression, a deep dive into um, toilets. Please tell us more. There's not even a scene in the bathroom. (laughs) Well, there is a scene in the bathroom, but they're not using the toilet. But they're staying in a hotel in 1913. And I'm like, okay, did they have ensuite bathrooms back then? And if they did, what did they look like? And okay, all of a sudden I am researching toilets in the early 1900s. Which is not a thing that I ever thought I would be doing. I just, and now I have useless, useless information about plumbing in 1900s. And it's, you know, it's taking up space that I needed for something else. It'll come back up to the surface and find a use. That, <laughs> <laughs> that information. Pub night trivia, something. Yes, it'll, it'll, I mean, the thing that I love about that sort of thing is how often you will dig deep and kill yourself to find out just the right information of like like how the toilets worked at this period or even if you're not necessarily doing a period thing of just like how toilets work so you're like doing using the right metal for the piping or something and odds are 97 percent of the people who read your book at the end do not care and that detail will just zip up three percent care a lot (laughs) and they will at you on twitter they will oh yes so much of my research is is devoted to making sure people don't at me <laughs> with corrections. Well, I have I have had a number of instances. Uh, I wrote a story called Boots of Clay, which was set in the Devil's West universe, which is a universe in which um, the Louisiana Purchase never happened. That entire section of land remained independent and magical, and the stories all happen within that. But I had a story where a band of Jews who had basically been kicked out of Portugal end up in the Devil's West and they're interacting with the local tribe. And the story is about culture clash and and whatnot. And I've had people saying, well, it's a really good story, but there weren't any Jews back then in the Old West. Again, the faces and gestures that you're not seeing, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even pull out an Ohun then. I just went to town with with um documentation and citations because oh no 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 honey so yeah that was public that was actually a public takedown that i did on twitter still out there somewhere well yeah they were asking for it oh they totally were asking asking for for it it. they came into my house (laughs) sometimes people just walk into your house and say please tear me to small pieces and you just have to oblige yep goodness 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 So I think wrapped up in this idea of of what we research and how much research we do and how close we hew to the research we do is the idea of accuracy or authenticity in the text. And this is something that like a lot of people have talked about. It's always a big topic of conversation, like on Twitter, when certain dragon shows try to claim they have to do certain things because of historical accuracy, you know, in their dragon show. (laughs) <laughs> and it's, it's, I've been on a couple of panels over the last couple of years that, that sort of touch on this idea. Somebody's going to complain some one way or the other. You're either not being, you know, grim and gritty and dark and, and gross enough, or you're being too much that, or you're ignoring a thing or you're not ignoring a thing. 
How do you deal with that? What What is your approach to the ideas of accuracy and authenticity when you're weaving history into what is a fictional story? I am a firm proponent of what I call two truths and a lie, in that I like to keep things as accurate as possible outside of my story. Using the Devil's West as an example again, everything that happened within the territory is completely made up. However, everything that happens outside of the territory, in the Spanish territories in the United States, was accurate. All of the politics, and that influenced things that were happening within the territory. So my feeling is if I use facts, accuracy as a structure, I can weave all sorts of crazy bullshit <laughs> in. And the reader's just kind of like, oh, that's true, that's true, that's maybe true. And it just, it's very, it's, for me at least, it's an effective structure um, that I can then use to basically play like it's a jungle gym and swing wherever I want. I don't worry too much about open quote authenticity because authenticity is a word I think that gets abused a lot and not understood because I'm creating this world. So as long as it is authentic within the created world, it's valid. If you can justify it with your world building, if you can make it be there for a reason, fine. If you're throwing it in just because titillation factor, or it looked like a cool idea, or it's a particular hobby horse you want to ride, and you have not established it within the structure of the world, then that's BS. That's crap. But if you've done it, if you've done your homework, and you've said, okay, this is how it fits within the world, then that's authentic to the world. If you're writing nonfiction, that's a whole other story. If you're writing a straight historical, that's another story. But when you start bringing the fantastical into it, you are the god of that world. Mm -hmm. You can be a benevolent god. You can be a benevolent god. Your choice. But you're the one who determines if something is authentic. You just have to make everyone else believe it's authentic. Right. I, I think some of the biggest challenges I've had is is bumping up against people who maybe do know their history, but then try and just impose that upon a secondary fantasy world. Like I, I had once in something that I had written in, you know, for, for critique where somebody's like, that goes against how canons were developed in history. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything if, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't jibe with the development of canons in the real world if it as long as it works within this case you know as long as well as long as as long as you've established how right. it was developed in your world yeah <laughs> well the funny thing is in the the case of this story it was simply the point of view's character's first interaction with them ever and so therefore you know they didn't know what they were but you know this person's like so yeah. So I was like, "What are you even saying?" Goes against the development. You know. Well, that person, that person couldn't have run into them in that scenario. It's like, well, that person didn't actually exist in real history. <laughs> right. So, yeah. I like how you phrase it about fitting, though. Like, does it feel a piece of the world you've created or the world you've mm -hmm. modified? Whether you're working with a second world or an, an alternate history, sort of. For me, a lot of it is figuring out things that are within my characters like conceptual availability based on their worldview based on what they do know based on the soup that they swim in you know like their thoughts on religion and society the the ideas mm -hmm. they've grown up with what sorts of things make sense to them 
they might not be the same things that make sense to us because people in societies change a lot over time. And, and in some ways, people in history are so much like us. And in some ways, they are so alien to us. And I love playing with oh, that. Oh, very much so. I love yeah. playing with that tension, like the, the interaction of where they can feel so familiar and so strange at the same time. But does it make sense to them? Would encountering this thing be a surprise to them or make sense in their world? And how can I show the reader that and let them know what is, quote unquote, normal in this world? You know, that's why I always love social history versus, say, military history. Military history is fascinating, but I want to know what's going on that caused that, how people are reacting. Working with um, Uncanny Times, the Huntsman series, a lot of what's going on in that time period are things like, obviously, um, women's suffrage, but also it was a time the, the unions were rising. There was strike busting all over the place. People were reacting pro and con to the cops going in and, and in some cases murdering people. So all of this was simmering throughout the entire society. Even if you weren't actively involved in any of this, you knew about it, you were hearing about it, and it shaped what was to come. And that's the fascinating thing to me about history is that it's not just History is not just the story of what happened. History is the story of how what happened shaped what happened next. That was a really good phrase, and I need to remember that. <laughs> it was really good. So, and that's storytelling. Yeah, and things like that, like, things like that fit together the same way that our characters' lives and plots fit together. How does one thing influence the next thing and create the next problem mm -hmm. and create the next solution, which, oh, <laughs> sorry, that solution caused three other problems. Oh, yeah. History works the same way. It's like, oh, that thing we did, it had unintended consequences. Whoops. And sometimes you can't see it in the moment. Sometimes you can only see it from looking looking back. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And most people think of history as, well, this happened, this happened, this happened, that happened. And it's actually more like a plate of spaghetti. It is, it is not linear at all because too many, too many things are happening. Too many people are involved. You get that many people involved, a, a country, a world, you got spaghetti. That was not a good phrase. Do not remember that. <laughs> no, it makes sense, though. And like, especially because depending on what period of history you're talking about, some people can get the idea that the world was less complex, that the world was much smaller, that there were fewer things happening. But, you know, history is always full of stuff. And even the eras where we don't have as much record of what happened, like people were still out there living their lives. Mm -hmm. the, their lives had the same, they had the same they number of days. They were very complicated lives. Yeah, they had yeah. the same days. They had the same number of hours in a day. They had people, they might have encountered fewer people on a daily basis. And one thing I think a lot about, um, because I, I used to teach uh, media literacy as part of a, a college course, is that one big change even within the last just couple of generations, is how much more media we intake, how much more messaging we intake on a daily basis than I think any of our ancestors did in a given year, honestly. But besides things like that, like their lives were still full of many, many, many things, even if it's not all written down. It's, it's not flat. It's not less yeah. complex. It's all intertangled every bit as much as our lives today are. And they had things that we would never even think of having to deal with. They dealt with them on a daily basis. So they had more complications that we don't have. And there are things that we can't understand. I, I'm reminded of one of my one of my favorite things are illuminated manuscripts. Um, just, I love them. 
probably because my advisor at college was a medievalist. And I love the fact that, like, you look at it and, like, why did they draw snails with knights riding them, <laughs> jousting with ravens? What was going on there? Oh, you could say, okay, you know, they were bored. They hated gardening. But there's actual <laughs> there's actual stuff going on there. Why a snail? And sometimes it's, yeah, sometimes it is that they were bored. Sometimes they were making political commentary. Sometimes they were just making commentary on life in the monastery. That's actually more often than you think. But there is a whole story happening in those margins that you have to have context to understand. That most of us would be like, I have no idea what snails, knights riding snails means. But it's really cool to look at. Like with those, like we, I tend, I think we tend to see them and we think like, oh, they were doodling the way we doodle in mm-hmm. our margins. Except that's a lot more effort to doodle. Like... Those, yeah, those were not not only were those beautifully done, but they were often on like formal documents. You know, you don't you don't hand in that to the to the abbot unless you know that you're not going to get into trouble for it. So there was something going on there, and people have made studies of okay, what exactly was going on there? And it would take more effort. And that is the ink, and that too is history. Yeah, Yeah, that is history. It's it's art history. It's social history, it's monastic history, but it's history. I tend to get very, very enthusiastic about illuminated manuscripts. I love it. I was so happy you brought up the snail because the snails are some of my favorite <laughs> things in, in medieval stuff. I was also thinking, I, I read something a while back that was like this really deep analysis of all the penises on the Bayou Tapestry. Oh God, yes. <laughs> and like what they mean and what their placement means. Most of them are on horses, but not all of them. And like most of them are in the marginalia of the Bayou Tapestry, but not all of them. And it was this whole thing going into like, why, which penis, where? And it's like somebody had to embroider all those penises. Yeah, you also wonder, is this just like the, the medieval version of Where's Waldo? Yes. <laughs> it's like you send it off and it's like, all right, how many penises will they find? Yes. Maybe they'll write me back and say, oh, there were 38. And it's like, aha, there were 41. I don't remember how many there actually were. And how much of that is like the person doing doing the embroidering just like i'm gonna put penises in and it's the work is done <laughs> well, is, so you're not gonna have was, me do it again because too late already did it it's more it was more than one person that was the thing is yeah. it was more than one person this had to be a concerted effort yes this was teamwork <laughs> there had to be consensus Team penis you know <laughs> consensus about the penises and now i'm picturing this whole thing where like you know some of the embroiderers were like really on team penis and some of them were like no no penises on our panels <laughs> Like, and you've got a whole story right there, right? Whole story that you can build around the penis embroidery of the Bayou Tapestry. I'm, I'm not taking that challenge. <laughs> Listeners, if anyone wants to, please do. Please, Go for it. Please send yes. it to me and entertain Just tell me. Just tell us about it afterwards. Yes. yes. <laughs> tell us about that because it would delight me. Awesome. So you, you said you really love social history, which I do as well. Mm-hmm. I got very giddy and happy faced because that's what excites me too. What are some of the other, either within social history or, or in another sense, some of the corners of history that you really like poking into, whether that's like the kinds of social history or are there certain time periods you really gravitate to, certain areas of geography, types of, of, of humans whose lives you like to investigate? Well, my area of study when I was in college was American history from 1860 to 1920. So that is, that's my playground. 
that's why writing the Huntsman novels was kind of like, oh, yes, yes, let's do this. I like complicated periods. And by that, I mean where there are a lot of internal and external events happening. The 18, early 1800s, 1850s, 1860s, the early 1900s. These are all fascinating periods to me because there's so much boiling. I don't, my, my main focus tends to be American history because that is what I know. It's what I have access to. Um, one of my uh, books, the Weinart War books, uh, actually are uh, divergent from the Etruscan period which was a whole different kind of research. But I had I had been in Italy and seen a lot of the digs and just fallen into research, this rabbit hole on vacation. And it just was like, okay, this is kind of cool. Let's see what we can do with this. Vinart War is fun because I basically convinced a major publisher to give me a contract for three books to write about winemakers as magicians which, yes, meant that going to visit vineyards was a tax-deductible yes. research trip. Brilliant. <laughs> Hashtag goals. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, buying a bottle of wine is not considered tax-deductible. Uh, but I, I just, I find areas of interest, I kind of fall into, I stumble into them a lot of times. Like, hmm, okay, that, that intrigued me. Uh, what ifs? Again, uh, for Devil's West... The Louisiana Purchase was a major pivot point. It enabled the United States to become the United States. And I thought, well, okay, what if that hadn't happened? What would have changed politically? What would have changed militarily? What would that have yeah. done to, to the expansion policies of Washington? All of this stuff just kind of tumbling in my head back to that storeroom. You know, things were just kind of knocking around in there and I opened the door and boom, story. So I don't think that there's really a section that I, I gravitate to naturally. It's just, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Let's poke. Which is also kind of my theory of life. I have a long, long trunked project because it was one of those things where I had like, I had a world and I had characters, did not have a plot, did not know what to do with them. <laughs> but I still liked the concept for this world because it was one of those like turning points, like you said. I read a thing about the Battle of Baltimore in the War of 1812 and how mm. there was a, a shell, an artillery shell landed in the armory of of uh, of the fort there and it didn't go off. And like, if it had gone off, the entire fort would have blown up because it was full of gunpowder, but like it had been raining or something. And so like that shell was, was a dud. And the thought I had was, oh my God, like what would happen if that had, if that shell had blown up? And mm -hmm. the U.S. had lost the Battle of Baltimore. They probably would have lost the War of 1812 at that point. Okay, what then? What if Britain gets re-control of some of the U.S., but not all of it? And how would the rest of the continent develop? Like, I love chasing down those, like, you flick one domino, and then you find out what else happens. Like, yep. what does that change? I think that's a really fun thing to play with. The best ones are when you find it purely by accident. Yeah. <laughs> Just stumbling over something. It's like, well, that's weird. I like it. <laughs> What can I do with this? Mm -hmm. yes. When you were saying about the, the Etruscans, and that was um, the first time I went to Italy, I was 16 and hadn't been outside the U.S. before. And we went into the Etruscan tombs. Oh, yeah. And I had this moment of like, this is the oldest thing I've ever been inside <laughs> by a couple thousand years. <laughs> because as someone who grew up in the U.S., it was like, I hadn't been to any sites 
you know, there's there's not that many of them in the U.S. Yeah. that have survived. And it was like, whoa, <laughs> all of a sudden I had that moment of like feeling history around me. And and my mind just starts thinking like, gosh, what? Yeah. What were those people like that created this space? Being being in areas that are that old, um, going to the Middle East completely messed with my mind because it's not even just you are in history, but there is history like eight levels down and everything is built on that. And there's something called um, Jerusalem syndrome, I think it is, where simply the weight of being in Jerusalem can drive people crazy, um, usually resulting in them thinking that they're the Messiah. I mean, whom's among us? <laughs> <laughs> but it it is the weight of that much history on the human brain does weird things. And, you know, that kind of explains most historians. <laughs> Everyone I've known, all my professors, yeah. Yeah. Just a little, something a little, <laughs> a little tweaked. My favorite professor in college was was a guy, uh, Philip Dayleader. He's amazing. And what I loved about him was that sometimes when he was talking, he was a medievalist, he would just take his hands and put them on either side of his head and squeeze as though he just couldn't take the history <laughs> that he was imparting to us. Like, it was just all too much. It was just all too much. And I just loved to just watch him do that. I knew something good was coming when he started to do it. Yeah. yeah. My uh, my history, my advisor, history advisor had been a, um, rather my, my English major advisor had been a monk and then a Marine and then a history, prof- a college professor. So we got stories. I bet. Yeah. That's quite a progression. Sometimes in, sometimes in Middle English, which I had to learn just to follow. Oh, no. <sighs> that's rough that's rough i mean you could do it but it's rough yeah so what are some of the i'm not even sure this is on our 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 thing but what are some of the ways that you like to then add fantasy to your history i like to there's always the addition of magic or magical things fantastical things i tend to have very scientific magic systems there's a reason how they work even if it's not in the book. But I like to just mess with people's minds. (laughs) I like to slide in something that is bizarre, something that is not expected, even when your characters expect it. Uh, In Uncanny Times, my main characters are monster hunters. They go out, they know they're going hunting the uncanny, and they know that something weird is going on. But I like to give it a twist. And... Make it something that seems familiar but isn't. And again, it goes back to that that two truths and a lie thing. I want my lie to seem like truth until all of a sudden it's kind of like, that that can't actually be true. And if I can do that, then I feel like I've, I've been successful. I don't like the magic or the fantastic taking over the story. I want it to kind of seep up from within, which I'm not sure if that actually answers the question, but... No, it doesn't. It's a good way to think about it. And and people will talk about, you know, high fantasy or low fantasy or like the, the saturation of the fantastic elements in a story. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy it, too. It's, it's, it's a lot of what I do is when the magic feels part of the world, not necessarily world defining. Yeah, exactly. It's not 
this is not a fantasy world. This is a world that has the fantastical in it. Mm-hmm. That's very much how I how I tend to approach the world building. It is a natural part of the world, even when it's supernatural. Well, especially in the case of you know first world historical fantasy, there's a lot of choices one has to make, especially when showing like things are otherwise exactly how they would be in you know the real world except plus magic the like the question of yes but plus magic should have changed a lot of things <laughs> so why a didn't lot. it and, yes. and i mean different works do different ways to get around that or maybe they don't do a very good job of of doing that but you know we, we won't name and shame anybody this time around at least i won't <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I always find that you know that's I think in doing historical fantasy I think that's sometimes the biggest choice you have to make is if you're history and just add magic what does just add magic even mean? Yeah, it's it has to be integrated. I think I mentioned earlier everything has to be integrated when you are building your structure, and if it strikes an odd note, you haven't done your world building right. If if the reader stops and goes, wait, what? In in ways you don't intend. Sometimes you want them to stop and go, wait, what? But if a element that you intended to be integrated is not, that's a that's a failure on the writer's part. It speaks to something we we talk about a lot on on this podcast, which is the on ramp problem. What is the on ramp for your mm-hmm. reader? How steep is it? What do you have to teach them to expect? And I think especially when you're doing a historical period that they may be somewhat familiar with. One of the big decisions is like, okay, if there's magic in it, is that magic usual or unusual? Is it permitted or forbidden? And you have to... Tr- is it hidden or overt? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And you have, to, you have to teach the reader these things pretty quickly so that they understand what kind of a world they're operating in. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of historical fantasy, especially, is not paced the way a thriller would be. Yeah. You do have to sort of ease people into things, get them used to the time period that you're in, get them used to the way the characters are going to react, which is not necessarily the way a modern character would react, and make sure that they are settled into it or strapped into it before you start the ride. That is such a good way of putting it. (laughs) Yes, like, please. I ought to be a writer. Yeah. Please make sure your seatbelts are securely fastened. Secure all loose articles before you go on this ride. No, it's true, though. Please keep your hands inside the window. (laughs) Exactly. At all times. It's a different pace. And it was something Mm -hmm. I struggled with a lot. And I think my first book, especially, was paced maybe slightly too much like historical fiction and not quite enough like a fantasy. But it's a peculiar balance that. Mm-hmm. is different from other subgenres of of fantasy. Yeah. Cuz you do have yeah. to And some people love it and some people don't. Um and that's okay. It's just you you can't try to force it into something else. Or at least certainly not in the first book introducing the world. <laughs> By the time you get to the 15th book whatever. You hope anyone who's you made it that far. George. Yeah. <laughs> has committed has hopefully retained some things from the first 14 books. They, 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 they've invested enough that they figured it out. And, and hopefully you don't need to explain it to them yeah. again. <laughs> hopefully. But you never know. But then it just occurs to me how much... When, when you're talking about scaffolding, I'm just thinking about how many urban fantasy or historical fantasies with magic types of things that seem to be over-reliant on 
secrets being very well kept or excessive uses of memory wiping magic. Mm. Like the um yeah the thing from from Men in Black, like the neuralizer, the neuralizer like the like, fantasy version. Oh of yeah, that. just yeah. it's like if your whole plot rests on the idea of like we're just constantly fucking with people's <laughs> memories, mind wiping people. <laughs> then, yeah, then there's a big problem with your plot. I think I would love to see like I'm not sure it could sustain a novel, but like a short story that actually explained that, like that it really explored like. The person whose job it is. How much neurological damage is <laughs> yes. doing. Yeah. Or like the person whose job it is to go uh, wipe the memories. Like, do they feel bad about it? it? Do they? <laughs> I, I, I want to I have a story from the point of view of the poor neurologist <laughs> who has to deal with all these people in a very, you know, high, high tone. readings that I'm Hospital, getting. yes. <laughs> Why does this town have so many amnesiacs in it? That would be, re- that could be a really fun short fiction, I think. <laughs> but it's true. And it is something that like, it. I don't want to say it's a cop out necessarily. It's close to one, but I do. Th- it's, it's a short. It's, it's a shortcut. It, it is. It, it's it's a shortcut that is fine if you use it properly. But if that's what you rely on, then yeah, then it's if you're just if you're just doing it to avoid having to consider the effect that magic does have on a world, then it's like oh, you could have done better. Maybe you could have you could have played more. You could have. <laughs> yeah, you could you you could have thought this out better. It feels like a fear, or as yeah. you know, as as I used to say when uh, when I was editing, uh, one of the most feared words in my editorial notes was "please clarify." Oh, no. <laughs> definitely one of the worst words. It's like, all right, you asked for it. Yeah, now you're said, getting please. four pages on <laughs> monastic history. You said you wanted editors like that. Which is I not will what then I cut. Meant. Which I will then cut in the line. Edit. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> it's like not what I was looking for. Thank you. Very informative. But so we've talked about the things that that we love when it comes to to stealing from history and playing with history. What are some things that you prefer not to take from history or that you would even consider like off limits for historical thievery? My short answer is done properly. Nothing is off limits. (laughs) Your definition of properly can vary. For me, it means done with research and respect. Me personally, I do have a couple of things I will not do. I will not use a actual person as a point of view character. Mm. At past a certain point in history, say, you know, 1900 and on or 1850 and on, because they still have family. There are still direct descendants. And it just feels a little squeaky to me. Yeah. That I just I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do that. You can have historical characters in your book, obviously, but I just I don't want to I don't want to be in their heads, and I don't want to be saying this is how they were. Now, obviously, some writers can do it brilliantly. Uh, Hilary Mantel did it, it; it blew my mind. But that's a thing that I personally am not comfortable doing. That makes sense. It's to use fan fiction terms, a uh, RPF, real person fic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, uh, which which also kind of <laughs> yeah, and like that usually refers to like living people. Which yeah, that kind of I you know if 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 you enjoy it's that's an invasion of privacy. But I also yeah. feel it's an invasion um, of the families. Of, yeah. Of, at least within four generations, if you can go back more than four or five generations, at that point enough genetics have gone under the bridge, so to speak. <laughs> but it's just it's it makes me uncomfortable. I think that's fair. That's uh, very fair. Probably a good rule of thumb is if nobody has living memory of a person who had living memory of that person then then you you might be okay but you know yeah 
But the moment you publish it, somebody's going to come out of the woodwork. <laughs> Whereas if you're dealing with, you know, Philip of Macedon, it's like, yeah, that's there's no direct line yeah, there. Yeah. Go forth and be creative, my child. Yeah. For me, it's a it's a there are certain periods of history and area, areas of history that fascinate me that I just feel like I'm the wrong vehicle for. You know, mm. there's there's cultures and places that I think are so interesting. But my white lady voice is not the <laughs> voice that needs to to, you know, to, to magnify it. Yeah. I would so much rather like there are some early African empires that are absolutely fascinating to me. I am not the right voice for that. I really hope yeah. that, that more people will write them so that I can read these things. But I would feel weird. I would feel squicky, like you say, like trying to I think, adopt. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's sort of an extension of what I was what I was talking about, which is there are actual people with this actual culture. Am I, am I the right person? As somebody coming from a minority background, I know that there are some things I just won't touch. But I also am delighted when I see people using my my culture respectfully and with research when they do it badly yeah then i get a little cranky but if if the information is offered to you um and here's another example from the devil's west i did not have any native point of view characters because i did despite the fact that there were native many native characters in the book because i did not feel that yeah this was not my voice to take they're in the story I did my research. I talked to people. I did a lot of research in um, oral storytelling and listening to the stories being told to get that cadence, which to me was really important. But I was not telling their story. I was telling the story that they were in. And that's kind of how I, I found my way into it. But yeah, if you're, if you're going to set it entirely in something that you are completely have no connection to, it is it is awkward. And you need to really think, okay, as, as the old saying goes, does the story need to be told? Does this story need to be told by me? Yeah, there's, there, there's been so often where I've just thought, ooh, this is a book that I want to exist. I am not the person who should be, who should be writing it. Yeah. But I hope somebody picks it up and runs with it. That, that's, when, <laughs> that's, when you, that's, when that's when you go on Tumblr and you make a post about it and you send it out into the world. And, you know, three years later, somebody's written the book. Hopefully. Or we say it on here and hope that someone yes. will do it. <laughs> but I think that that point of view that you mentioned is critical to that, too. Like, you don't want to erase these people from your world. You want to acknowledge that they were there. They existed. Yeah. But without trying to adopt their their, for their voice. That's where it gets into the misappropriation yeah. that, that, yeah, to me feels feels weird and icky. Yeah. And also, you just can't, you can't do it right if you cannot <laughs> properly do the research and some things you can some things you can say okay i would like to learn about this and you can find the right teachers and you can find the right resources and you can figure out a way to tell the story but if you can't you can't force it you shouldn't force it anyway and that's i mean that's true in history also if you want to and sociology if you want to learn about a culture, you have to be able to get to the culture. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to get to the period in terms of resources, in terms of primary documents. I adore primary documents. Um, I, I would rather spend more time with primary documents than go to a third-hand retelling. And if you can't, then don't. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there there are no primary documents left, but 
those are specialized cases, I think. My tragedy is always not speaking enough languages to get to all the things, you know? <laughs> yes. Because a translator is always going to, you know, you're never going to be quite sure. And some things just don't even exist in translation. I was I was trying to do... Some, some things don't even exist yeah. in writing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just hard to access. I got so frustrated a while ago. I was I, I listened to a lot of um, the great courses, which are university mm -hmm. lectures that are available um, through my library. And there are some ones about areas of history that I don't know enough about and I would like to know more about but I'm like do I want to listen to this this white dude lecturing about imperial China like I'd much rather hear from someone who yeah like I just like I'm sure he's great but I'm just not sure that's the way I want to get that history you know that's not the way I want to yeah. receive it and that's, it, it's always why it's better if you're reading something in translation to find somebody a translation that was done by a native speaker yeah yeah they have a better feel for the nuance than even the most fluent person from outside that culture. Yeah, yeah. They'll they'll get the idioms. They'll get the the mm -hmm. little things that that they don't you don't teach in a class. You don't learn in a class. Yeah. Well, all that was a little heavy. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Rowena, who could not be with us tonight, wanted to make sure that we asked and that all three of us answer a favorite random historical factoid that you haven't been able to shoehorn into a book yet <laughs> okay there there's one thing that um i haven't been able to use because i haven't written that period yet mm -hmm. um which is uh during prohibition bootleggers obviously doing their thing getting the booze out to to everyone in america who wanted the government was kind of like all right how do we how do we crack down on this what are we going to do it's not enough just to you know find them and t and confiscate the booze so they took, I guess it was industrial alcohol, basically, that was not supposed to be used for drinking, that the bootleggers were using as their base. And they poisoned it, thinking, okay, we're going to let everybody know we have poisoned it. This is not to be used. Unfortunately, oh, no. people are stupid. <laughs> oh, no. Bootleggers still used it, oh. and something like seven or 8,000 people died. <gasps> that is yeah. horrifying. Oh, my goodness. Because people are stupid and will continue to do this. And also people are greedy and the bootleggers were like, yeah, no, we can still make money. Probably nobody will die. Um, I, this actually happened. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I completely believe it. You think about modern drugs that are cut with fentanyl. It's mm -hmm. kind of the same, you know, same principle. Like, yeah, yeah, it might kill some people, yeah. but I I got my yeah. money. Yeah. So <laughs> on, on, a on a related, much lighter tone. <laughs> Because there's sweet in here. There's a, there's another there's another there's another booze bit that I have not been able to use. Actually, I think I may have referenced it. Also during Prohibition, there was grape growers who were allowed to continue growing their grapes and sell them as pressed blocks of of what's called must for home use, as long as they were not used to make wine. So the growers would. Specifically, this is out in California. They would take these blocks of, of musk, these pressed grapes, and wrap them in paper that listed very carefully what you were not supposed to do because it was against the law. In detail. <laughs> Instructions. Exactly what you were not supposed to do. I love that so much. Oh, malicious compliance <laughs> is so good. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do not take these steps. <laughs> Mm -hmm. to make wine don't do this. this this is illegal yeah you really really shouldn't i'm gonna be very clear about what you shouldn't do 
to make sure you don't do it on accident. <laughs> I absolutely cannot tell you. Oh, that's glorious. That's glorious. Marshall, what historical factoid? Oh, um, I, I'm going to have to lean to one of my old favorites, which is the, 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 the whole thing with the galanium spoons that because the melting temperature of galanium is just a little bit above you know human body temperature so they would make people would make spoons out of this metal just so that you would stir it in your tea and it would instantly melt and your spoon would vanish just as a prank um which is a you know kind of a malicious prank because then at best you have ruined tea at worst you have somebody with metal you just poison just poison somebody but i so want to integrate that sort of that spirit of sciencey pranks that, that is behind all that of just like especially then if you add magic to that of just sort of like hey this is all in good fun or quote unquote good fun but like people goofing around with just the things you can do with science and or magic or in combination just just to mess with each other well y'all are out here poisoning people not <laughs> mine <laughs> I'm picking a sweet one. I'm picking I'm picking a nice a nice historical tidbit that I haven't found room for. I've got so many things that I technically haven't found used yet because I'm still drafting my Shakespearean era one, but I know they're going to get in there. I'm going to wedge them in somehow. This is one I'm not sure I'll have room for, and it's the um decorated busks of of stays and corsets as sweetheart gifts. And I've I've seen this both ways, either that like um you know, a sailor out at sea would would carve it for his sweetheart to give to her when he came back, um, so that you know she would think of him while while he was off on the seas, or that a girl would do it and then give that busk to her gentleman as a token for when he was was out on the sea to remember her by, because it was something that had been you know very intimate to her, very close to her heart. Um, I think that's a really sweet like a, a little gift kind of thing a tradition that we've totally lost because we don't have that article of clothing anymore um that and we have i, I was gonna say it's basically you know pass pass passing off you know a piece of lingerie yeah, to remember them but like i mean like a couple examples and like they're such beautifully intricately carved things because they're these essentially strips you know there's long strips of wood they're like 18 inches long mm-hmm. um and you can do all kinds of just beautiful woodwork on it and and i can imagine too in a fantasy world weaving magic into that as well that there's some kind of like literal mm-hmm. protective charm to keep him safe when he's out out to, to keep him safe from storms or something you know so that's something i would like to use haven't found a use for it yet but maybe someday not poisoning people jeez <laughs> no it's true i mean so much of history is, is violence and people doing terrible things which is so much fun for us and people, people being, being stupid. stupid. Yeah, there's a lot of people yeah. being stupid. There, there's a good I, intersection of all these this. things. <laughs> Stupidity I and violence. I this the other day. <laughs> How much of history makes more sense when you think about the fact that, like, in a lot of eras, the people in charge were, like, 20-year-olds whose brains have not finished forming yet? And it's like, oh, of course, your nation was being run by someone who wasn't finished baking. <laughs> That's why he made those choices. <laughs> I get it now. Makes way more sense. <laughs> All right. Before I go to our actual ending, Laura Ann, is there anything else you desperately wanted to talk about before we before we wrap things up? No, I think we've pretty much hit most of my, you know, other than my usual caveat of, you know, we're professionals, we do this at home <laughs> kind of thing of hist- history requires mm-hmm. work. 
and if you're not willing to do the work, don't mess with it. Because that is where you end up looking really stupid. Where would you suggest listeners start when they want to do the work? They want to do it right. How can they get started? I feel like this gets asked on every, like, historical fantasy panel I've ever been on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, I already mentioned, I I love my primary sources. Mm -hmm. And they're actually easier to find than you would think with the wonders of the internet. The truth is, go to Wikipedia, ignore the article... Go down to the footnotes, see where they took their material from and go look at that. That's usually what I, what I suggest. That's what I do. I mean, it's, it's a really useful shorthand because somebody's already done the work for you. Same thing with, if you're, you know, there's a, if there's a book on the subject, nonfiction or fiction, see if they cite their sources, go check their sources. Somebody's already done the work for you. You know, that's, that's bad when you're in college writing a paper for, for credit, but it's really good when you're a writer on deadline. <laughs> yes, and it's such an easy way to figure out who some of the like prominent names in the field are. And then, yeah, you can chase those rabbit holes mm-hmm. down, chase their sources down. Um, something I, I tell people, because not everyone realizes this, is that if you did go to a college or university, you probably still have access to their library stuff in some, some degree of it. Um, they probably have some kind of digital access to JSTOR or, or to their other archives that you can still get to. Yeah. So. It's out there. And there are so many, there's so many libraries now that yeah. have digitized and put their, um, their material available. Uh, librarians love <laughs> to show people things. Like, oh, you're interested in that? Okay, yeah, over here and there and download this and you can get access a lot of places that you wouldn't even think that you could. Just ask me. Museums, too, have started digitizing so much of their mm-hmm. stuff, and, and you can yep. dig in. Fabulous. Well, Laura Ann, this has been an absolute delight. Um, I, I am so charmed <laughs> and have laughed so much. As we come up at the end of our hour, we are going to ask you, as we do all of our guest stars, um, to give us a little bit of trivia for the world that we are co-building live on this podcast. Um and we will work it into to our increasingly chaotic world <laughs> somewhere. Okay, here's here's a weird fact. I don't know how you'll use it, um, but I'm going to take the world-building aspect of this literally because in addition to my English and history majors, I was a geology Ooh. minor, purely by accident. That's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, did you know that mountains have roots? And in many cases, the underground mountain is actually taller in reverse Mm. than the mountain that we see they're like icebergs in that regard and that actually keeps them um i don't remember the exact physics of it but there's something having to do with the gravity of how deep the roots go and how thick they are now i'm going to send people scurrying to the geology text i always thought that was just a metaphor mountains have roots (laughs) the roots of the mountain i (laughs) but that makes perfect sense in that continents match each other and make things they would go up and they would go down Yep. And they go, they go way down and often out. It, they're basically like trees. If you've got a really, really big tree, it has to have root system that will keep it upright. Mountains are the same. Listeners, you missed us all doing plate tectonics with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's how those work. That's how those build. But this, but this also, I mean, people are discovering, especially um, undersea mountains, how deep things go. Well, what's under I there? don't want to know. Things under the sea can stay there. 
I respect their space. You know somebody's going to find it. Bring it up and say, oh, sure, let's open this. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) So what is under the roots? Or is it just, or are you just posing the question and that that's, that's what's. Posing the I'm question. posing the question. I'm posing the question. Some mountain roots, yeah. some fantastic Something mountain roots for us. Is under the mountain roots, and it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> something is under oh, the mountain. We'll figure it out. Ooh. We'll figure something out. Go ask the dwarves. <laughs> they oh, delve too deep. Basically, in the plot line of Rings of Power. Anyway, if you can end on Tolkien, end on Tolkien. Yeah. Hey, Laura, and thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. It was a pleasure. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on November 23rd, where we'll be talking with Britt Huide, executive editor at Orbit Books, who will talk to us about world building from the editor's perspective. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including my just-released novel, The Quarrygate Gambit, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochist.potbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.